Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad that you're here. This has been a little bit of a hard week for me um, for a number of different reasons, but one of which was there was a, a lawyer friend of mine who I've known through the church for many years who passed away. He's my age. And I had to go to the funeral this week on Wednesday at another church. And um, it just the whole week has sort of been that. And I've got a stressful talk tomorrow night at Pub Theology. I'll say more about that later on in the announcements. But um, when I was at this funeral, when it was over, I ran into a friend of mine at this church who said, walk with me. And um, I was like, okay. And we walked over to the columbarium that's outside this church. And she wanted to go to the columbarium where her son is laid to rest. And as we walked over there, we walked up to the niche where her son is, who died many years ago, and she kissed her lips and touched the plaque where his name was. And it tied in with what I've been thinking about all week, about how much we need something tangible. We need something tangible that's figurative of our love, or our experience of these different things that we have. And that's actually what I'm going to talk about today a little bit, is our need for this ten- tangible experience of different things. It's part of how we're wired, maybe, or what we deeply need. Because today we're talking about the second commandment. We're talking about do not make any idols for yourself. And we're going to circle back and dig into that deeply. We're doing this as part of a sermon series. If you're new, if you're just joining us, we're doing this sermon series called 10, which we're looking at the 10 commandments. We're taking a week for every single one of the 10 commandments and we're marching through them. And before we dig into the second commandment, I want to give just a very quick mention of where we've been so far to kind of bring you, bring you back to thinking about all these different places that we've been. We started out on week one talking about the preamble and the first commandment. And this preamble is interesting, right? Because it's, it's what in the Jewish tradition is commandment number one, separate from commandment two, which is what we also call number one. But this preamble that says, I'm the the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. And when it says Lord, we don't always know it if you haven't sort of been around the map, but that word is Yahweh or Jehovah. And it's 6,400 times more in in the Old Testament. But it's a word that means I am what I am. It means I'm the sustainer. I'm the giver of life. I'm the one that's behind it all kind of a kind of a, a deal. And I'm the redeemer because I'm the one who brought you guys out of Egypt and out of slavery. That's what gets said before we launch into anything. And then we get to what we call the first commandment, that you're to have no other gods besides me. This is Moses comes down with the tablet and all this. This is at the foot of the mountain at Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. And he comes down and he says this. And God is really saying, I want to be your main thing. I want to be your priority. I want to be the one who gives you life the way it's meant to be lived. I want to be the one who sustains you, encourages you, and helps you, who becomes your way to be anchored through your time on this earth and how we live from that place. And we talked about that on week one. And by the way, all these sermons are available online if you missed any of them. And then the second week, we went to commandment number four, and we talked about the Sabbath. We talked about having a day of holy rest. We talked about having a day where we stop and look at the goodness of God's creation and give gratitude. A day in which we think about how we celebrate the freedom 
that we have in God that he brings to us. And then last week, Dr. Power talked about how we honor our mothers and fathers on Father's Day in commandment number five. So we're bouncing around the numbers just a little bit, but today we go back to commandment number two, depending on who's counting and how you count, because there's a variation of whether you know it or not. Jews count them a certain way. Roman Catholics and Lutherans count them a certain way, and the rest of the Protestant house counts it another way. So you've got to kind of go look at this. And if you want to see a good chart, it's actually a great chart in Wikipedia that lays out how the different people count them. But this second uh, commandment is that you're not to make any idols for yourself. And I want to read the full version of it. it. We talked about this on week one, but the commandments appear in two places. They're in Exodus 20, and they're also at the start of Deuteronomy. So you have two different versions of the Ten Commandments. I want to read this commandment from Exodus 20 real fast. And I'm going to read the full version of it because it's, it's a couple verses. It's from Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that's on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to this thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I think when we hear that passage, there's a whole lot in there, and I'm going to go to some of the hard bits in a, in a few minutes. But when we hear that passage, I think one of the things, if you just read it straight out of, the, out of the box, you think, this is one of those passages where I think I could just skip because it doesn't really apply to me. Like, I'm not making little figurines. I don't have, little, I don't have a little dashboard idol on my, in, the, in my car or anything else like that. Why is, why is this relevant? But I want to suggest to you that it is. But the way I'd like to unfold this is I'd like to go back for a minute and ask, what did it mean at the time it was said? And then begin to speak about maybe how it applies to us today as we live out our faith and as we engage in things. And if you go back at the time this was put out there, you got to back up and just think about this for a minute. Like every group of people at the time in the ancient Near East were polytheistic, like not only like a little bit, but like a lot right? If you go back and look at Egypt about this time, they had like over 2,000 different gods. And almost all of these um, people of faith, with their, all their different polytheistic views on things, they all had idols. That was part of how they worshiped. And I think part of why they had idols goes to something fundamental that goes back to this way I started the sermon today, is we all have a deep need for something tangible, around our love, around our commitments, around who we are. And so their way to try to get tangible was we want idols. And I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But just to jump into it for a second, the second commandment goes right into that and says, I don't want that. You're not supposed to have graven images or these different idols. What were these idols? If you go look at um, some of the experts that have gone back and looked at these things, um, I think about, there's one uh, article I read in the last couple of weeks that, um, that's on this point that comes from uh, this professor whose name is Uri Gabe of 
Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He describes this process about what happens with this, but they would carve a wooden image or a stone image. Then they would coat it with some precious metal. And usually these were anthropomorphic um, images, but not always. But they would hold them up in this place and then think that God was imbued in them. And, and, it's like, and, and some of us today, we think, how did these people do this? Did they not have rational brains back at the time? Like, how did this work? Well, part of what they did, they had these elaborate rituals about how they went from something they created to how it was going to be God imbued. They had the, the ritual was oftentimes called um, the mouth washing. And it would take two days to do this ritual. And seven different times, the priest would come and wash the mouth of this idol. And as they went through this process, it started in the craftsman's um, workspace and then it went down to the river and they would throw his tools into the river and they would do all these different kinds of rituals and prayers and wash it, literally washing of the mouth of the idol. And when they were done with it, they felt like God had inhabited the idol, that the idol was imbued with God's presence. And so now you could start to do all these different things. And a lot of this comes from the different research they've done. This particular professor talks about this one tablet found in the seventh century from the seventh century BC in Nineveh that describes this whole process of these seven steps of washing the mouth of the idol and all this. But once they thought then after this ritual that the idol was imbued with God's presence, their God's presence, then they treated him differently, the idol differently. They would clothe him. And I, I picture this little little doll that's getting little little clothes put on him and they would offer food to him, even though they knew he wouldn't eat it. And they would come and anoint him with oil. And then maybe once a year or something, they would um, carry him outside of the temple where he was and let people see him or go to other temples or all that. That's what they did. And this idea that, that he was present in that place. And they had this vision. If you, if you went to one of their temples at the time, if you go back to look at any of these ancient temples, they would have a Holy of Holies and if you went in there, they had this thing that looked like a boat and it had a place where the idol was placed on it. And it had a place for the poles to go in it where the people could carry it when they took it out once a year so that everybody could see it. And they treated it, as I said, they clothed it and took care of it and offered food to it and gave oil and did all these things. That was the picture. That's what's going on at this time. And in the second commandment, God is saying, I don't want any of that. And that's, that's not right. That's not the way I want you to behave with me. And all of these ancient peoples that are out there thought the Israelites were crazy as they acted on this. They would be at war and the Israelites bring out the Ark of the Covenant, but there's no idol on it. Or later when the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem and they go into the temple and go into the Holy of Holies, there's no idol. They think these people are crazy in what they do. That's the kind of the situation. And then we start to maybe ask the questions, well, what, what is so wrong with having an idol that represents the God maybe, or I guess really it's more than that. It's the God imbues it. But you get all of these prophets who come along then who say, who, who say look, this is stupid. They kind of say that in different terms. This is kind of stupid. That idol is going to do nothing. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone covered in precious metal. That's all it is. But people are so desirous of having something tangible, 
something they can see, something they can go make an offering to, something they, they can deal with, that this feeds into to all of this. And if you want to go read about how the prophets put this down, go back and read Isaiah 40 to 46 and how Isaiah talks about how, this is me kind of paraphrasing, but how silly it is. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of stone. So, so it doesn't do anything. So why are you holding these idols in this place? And what we do with that. There are other reasons that people point out about why we don't do this, right? I think about one commentator who said this about the reasons why not. He says, don't, that he wants to prevent Israel from identifying the true God with a created thing. To identify God with any created thing is merely one step from thinking of God in terms of that image, of limiting God, the infinite God, with this one particular image of what it is. How limiting that is to have one image of God instead of realizing that this infinite God is beyond anything we can comprehend fully. You're trying to cage him and put him into some certain way that you can view him and handle him and maybe put him in a certain place. And what that is. I think about, when I think about that, I think about how limited our, mag, our imaginations are in when we try to put images on things, right? And I think the best example of that that we can get really quickly is whenever you've read some fantastic book and you've read it and, and it's, it's a great book and you're like, it's wow. And then the movie comes out. And if you've read the book, the movie is never in the ballpark, ever. They would, I mean, like, because it's not your imagination of it. It's like, it's so much more open than that and big than that. And I think when you try to take the God, the infinite God, and, to, and take him down to some set image, it would be worse than that. And God doesn't want any piece of that. He's bigger than you will ever imagine. And he wants you to know that and not, not limit yourself in what you do and how you set this. That's the, that's the whole context of what this commandment I think is about so our question then becomes okay well again I'm not going to make any idols I'm not going to put one on my dash I'll have the bobblehead but not an idol why does this matter but I want to suggest that maybe we flirt with different idols not just different gods but different idols of something that's we're trying to get to capture something of how we think about God one of my favorite uh, theologians and writers um, talks about this, and he suggests that there are th at least three different ways in which we fall into temptation around modern-day idols. And I want to mention all three of these because I think they're great about what we do with this. And the first one of these is to think about um, people who, if you've ever been around a really impactful clergy person— about somehow conflating that clergy person with God. Like, like and I know, you, I know when, you, when I put it out there like, yeah, you think, oh, I would never do that. But people do that. It does happen. And this whole idea about putting somebody on a pedestal, that terminology comes from idols. The idols were put on pedestals where they were in the Holy of Holies. When we talk about putting somebody on a pedestal, that's what we're talking about. But how many times have people put a clergy person on a pedestal? And held them in some high regard in that way. And conflated them with their image of God. But the truth is, every single one of us 
including all of us up here, are broken people. And if you're with us long enough, we're going to fail you. So do not put us on a pedestal and in that place. In big and small ways, we'll fail you. There'll be an email we'll miss. There'll be a text message that we'll miss or we didn't respond to fast enough or even bigger things where we do something where we fall into our human nature and our brokenness in some big way. I always think about this um, in my bivocational life. I practiced law with this one guy for a while, this uh, law partner with me, who one day we finally got around to talking about our faith practices. And he told me the story about how for years he'd been involved in this mega church in Dallas, this evangelical mega church. And it's a church I knew. I'd heard the name. I know where it is and all this kind of stuff. But I never heard that the founding pastor, after he got it going and made it into a bigger church, big mega church, got caught in, in an affair. And I don't know what it did to everybody else in the church, but I know what it did to this guy. That was it for him. He had so conflated this pastor with God that when that happened, he threw religion out the door. And so I feel like every clergy person about once a year should get up and say, do not do that. If you want perfection, we have a reason why we have a cross at the front. We have a reason that we have an altar at the front. I'm cheat a little bit and come from the pulpit over to the middle, but, but that's the center. That's why we have that at the center because that will always be perfect and faithful and we will not. So we, we need to be reminded of that. I think the other idol, which my, this theologian I like says that we sometimes fall into is making ideologies into an idol where we start to blur God with other ideologies that we want. And you could think about this in a lot of contexts. In your lifetime, has there ever been a president you didn't think was particularly Christian or holy or whatever? But it always ends the sermon by, or his speech by saying, and God bless America and all this stuff, to try to wrap it up somehow in the Christian message or in the, in the theist message with it. And we think about all the isms that can get wrapped up. People want to connect these as part of faith. This is part of what we do. All these different kinds of liberalism and conservatism and libertarianism and environmentalism and socialism and nationalism and patriotism and all the different things want to somehow put God on their side and say, this is part of what it means to be a God follower. This has happened recently, right? There are tons of people in our nation today who are really put out with the evangelical church for associating with certain political structures. Why is, that, why is there that connection? And this is, this is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. You go back and read, even go back to Hitler. Hitler said this along the way. He says, I believe I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jew. I'm fighting for the work of the Lord. There's a real temptation to try to wrap these things up and make ideologies somehow tied to God and maybe even an idol that he's present somehow in that. That's the second thing. The third thing that I would mention that comes from this theologian is maybe a little bit startling when I first say it, but bear with me for a second, is making the Bible into an idol. That we can make the Bible an idol because we like it, in cer certainly in parts of Christ in the Christian world, 
because it's tangible, it's present. We can learn all the different tenses of the Greek. We can hold it. It's very, it's right there. And we can try to make it into a God. And, it, and I think a quick picture of that is to think about how fundamentalism that started in the 19th century, how we did, there was a shift that took place in this part of the Christian, of our Christian brothers and sisters. Before that, the statement of faith, the creed, which we'll say in a few minutes, would always start by saying, I believe in God. But if you go look at the faith statements that came out of fundamentalism, it would always start with, I believe in the inerrant Bible as a beginning place. That this got held up as sort of the fourth part of the Trinity. And all this faith that gets put into it without really seeing how complex the Bible is. Or what's involved and what, how we handle it and what we do with it. And it is complex. You start looking at a number of different issues. I mean, I can mention a few. You think about slavery for a second. Did the Bible condone it? We're doing this sermon series on it. We got to acknowledge that there are a couple of these commandments that mention it. Some of the translations soften it by saying servant. But it's idea like you need to give the slaves a day off or don't covet the other their neighbor's slave or whatever else it is. Like what? Is that something that God condones? And it, it, it's complicated, right? And it took the church a long time to come to the place of saying, yeah, no, that's not. God does not condone that. Or you think about, again, to stick with our sermon series, when we get to talking about some of the later commandments where we talk about do not covet your neighbor's wife. Does God think of women as property? Well, is that the way that thing reads? It kind of does. But that's not the way it is. You've got to look at the complexity of it and you've got to look at the whole of it. But people put it in this place where I read it, I believe it, that's the way it is kind of a thing. Or even the commandment we read today when we read it in the long version that talks about if you don't follow this command, your children three and four generations from now will be punished for this. Is that really what God believes? And how complicated is that? But then you go read the whole of Scripture and you read passages like from Ezekiel 18, where it says, The person who sins shall die, and a child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteousness shall be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. All these different kinds of things that are complicated in Scripture, so we don't hold it up that way as an idol. And there are more I could go into. There, those are the three he gave. I think in our own tradition, sometimes we make liturgy into an idol. I know I encountered God when I did this right in this place in this way. And that's what I want to hold on to because that's what it is. And this other person says this other thing. We can make liturgy into an idol and we sometimes do. I want to, I want to wind up with one final like segment of this where we look at if that's what idols are about, but we need something tangible. I want to suggest to you that as we think about this commandment, there are many ways in which we encounter God in, in tangible ways. We need something tangible. Maybe that's how we're made, or maybe that's what God recognizes. But we do have that in a, lot, in a number of ways. First of all, God ultimately takes on flesh, becomes tangible, walks on this planet in tangible form. We read about it every Christmas, how in John 1, how 
God takes on flesh and walks amongst us. And that's the reason why, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it, but in every Eucharist, we read the gospel. Tim read it a minute ago. Because we want to read about how God walked on this planet, what he did, what he taught, how he moved, because it's tangible and how we learn from it. And that's what we do with it. That's part of what we live with. We live with. We encounter God in that way. Or I think we can also think about, you know, we get, it's a whole other sermon. I promise I'm not going there. But the Eucharist. I think one of the reasons God gave the gift of the Eucharist is so we could have something tangible and how we interact with God's grace and how we receive it and experience it. It's placed on your hand and, and what it is and how we receive it. And it's a placeholder, I know, but it's, but it's tangible. And the final thing I'd mention on this point, maybe the most potent in some ways, is God gave us a recognition of God in every single person here. Because every single one of us, we go back to Genesis 1, is made in the image of God. And I wonder what the world would be like if every single person on the planet tuned into this and could see and recognize the image of God in every other person. What it would do to our economic structures and caring about the richest and the poorest, the whole spectrum, if we could see the image of God in everyone or all the different ways, how we would handle every single person in the world. Our biggest foe is made in the image of God how it would change us. I think also the, the call to us, I think it's always there, but when we live into our faith, I think others, that's our witness. When we live into our faith that way, it can be enhanced how people see God's image in us. When we act out of true compassion and out of, not out of selfishness, people see something of the image of God in us more profoundly. It's part of how we witness in the world. When we do things that don't, that don't matter and don't happen that way. And I also think is that it affects how we see and minister to the rest of the world. You know, last week, if you were with us at Pub Theology, we talked about atheism. And, and Billy Abraham said that, and it's a long talk, you can go watch it. But one of the things he said to the group was, one of the difficult things for atheists is to deal with these angels, he called them. These people who so embody God's presence and how they live their life that it's almost inexplicable. And one of the examples he gave was Mother Teresa because they're showing forth in a profound way the image of God in them. And I think about Mother Teresa because not only the witness she gives and people seeing that in her, but in her own statements, she talks about how potent it is to be able to see the image of God in the people they're trying to serve. Mother Teresa said they, her sisters of charity would never be able to care for the, these people dying in the worst of conditions if they couldn't see Jesus in the, the image of God and the people they're serving. And I'll, I'll just read one quote from her, and I promise I'll sit down. Mother Teresa said, I see God in every human being. When I wash the leper's wounds, I feel I'm nursing the Lord himself. It's not, is it not a beautiful experience? The idea of seeing the tangible image of God and the beauty that we see in other people. There are many ways that we can encounter God in a tangible way. Jesus incarnate, sacraments, the image of God in other people. We don't need other things. 
God tells us, do not make idols for yourself. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you, you love us and you call us on a journey with you. Help us to see the image of you in ourselves and in one another and to honor you as we see you in each other. Help us keep our eyes on you and not on any idols that might distract us or confuse us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.